In today's quest, we meet the man who flippantly told Justinian just where he can shove those Roman demands. This is the quest for power. Welcome back to the Quest for Power, where we are ranking and reviewing all of the European monarchs from the early Middle Ages to World War I. We are your self-proclaimed lore masters, Scott and Michael. We are on a quest to expand the boundaries of your knowledge and to discuss the history and tales that has shaped Europe as we know it today. Today, we are going to be diving into the life and reign of Teutobert, which is a fun one to say. Uh, I'm glad that you have the pronunciation because that's not how I would have pronounced it, but you know, I think, here we are. Yeah, I think like we did uh, Theodoric entirely wrong. I think it might be Theodoric. Theodoric. <laughs> yeah. Because so, the H is silent is what I keep seeing um, for like Germanic uh, names. And these guys are definitely German. So it's subtly there. Yeah. Like, I, I can hear the H in there. It's not as silent as we think it is. Yeah, um, it's, it, it's a mixture of that and what I know of Spanish, <laughs> which I don't, I don't know if that's good or not, but Spanish is from Latin, so I'm assuming these names are, like, half German and half Latin, and that's how I get the pronunciation I do. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, so um, if you ever want us, or actually... Um, so and that's the nice thing is that we just kind of learn a lot of these um process or a lot of these pronunciations as we go uh and so we're kind of learning along with you guys because you know of course you know there's the um the research and then obviously we just kind of expound upon or we kind of expand upon a lot of the content so this is kind of a learning experience for all of us um but if you want to learn even more then and you want to give us some extra support uh we're building a library of some extra stuff at patreon.com slash quest for power so and with that we can move on to our modern history segment so michael what have you been up to um well I've been up to watching my child for the last time before I have to go back to work for full time. So that's kind of unfortunate, but eh, it is what it is. I forget that you uh, have been kind of in the um, half in, half out. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Three days a week's really nice. <laughs> yeah, I bet it is. Not, but it's yeah. also horrible because like any I can't get like any one project done. I can basically get enough of like catch up. And then by the time I get back again, I got to play catch up again because I have to grab 16 hours out of thin air. Just because I leave doesn't mean my work falls away. What? No, I know. Shocker. That's what I always keep telling myself. It's just like, it'll be there tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that's that's kind of a tough one. So one of yeah. those things where you just want to get stuff done, but you're also like, well, I also have my own personal life that I need to lead. 
oh yeah and i would take the like what i got on monday and on mondays and tuesdays like over anything it's so cool to be able to uh have that opportunity to be able to like i don't know it allowed me to time develop... with your kid <laughs> yeah yeah to, it allowed me to develop a bond i definitely would never have gotten with him elsewhere now it's pretty awesome every time i walk into a room his eyes light up and he smiles which just is awesome for me so i i i can't get enough of his smile his laugh the things we do to get ch babies to laugh is kind of insane when you think about it enough of baby talk <laughs> what have you been up to scott Oh, geez. Um, honestly, I, I have not really done anything. It's like a lot of, um, a lot of like preparing for a, just a wee little trip, um, going over to Mammoth Cave because I'd never visited and I've been, I've driven past it a couple times here or there. I was like, you know what? So grab, grab a few friends and make my way down to Mammoth Cave. It'll be nice. I was just in a cave over uh, in Tennessee where um, there was actually some bootleggers there, mm. or there used to be, and parts of the still is still there because it would have been such a pain to try and bring it all the way up to the surface. <laughs> so. Yeah, I've been to a few caves before, but this is like, you know, the the big one. This is like is the largest this, cave in North America. Stay do you get to stay overnight in this one? Uh, or... No, and nor would I want to. Oh, it is. Oh, it's it. it you're truly going. What's it called? Splunking. Um, I. It's gonna be like a lengthy. Like it's more of like just like a like a guided tour. Um, okay. Because like full blown spelunking is just kind of like a. Um, it's a little intense for me. Because gotcha. Man, you're like I'm not a claustrophobic person, but uh, boy, would it probably you know some of the tight spaces you can see in caves would definitely engage some of that. No, oh, yeah, we're going on like a lengthy tour, so oh, I've, that sounds really fun. Yeah, uh, so we're gonna learn all about this cave and more. I have no idea what to expect other than it being a cave. So. I will learn all about the stalactites and stalagmites. I've never not been in uh, never I've never been in a cave and not had a good time. They're just super cool. I yeah, they're pretty I, cool. There's always a like, gem in every like oh, some yeah. kind of just like oh yeah, like this little this little tidbit has some like odd highlight. Yeah, in Mexico we got to sleep uh we got to uh swim in these underwater rivers mm. and like to go like you only had about um you could only raise your head about a little bit above the water otherwise the the you know like there was rock right there. So you had but the water was pretty deep. You just couldn't <laughs> It doesn't yeah, that that would yeah. that would make me uncomfortable, probably. It was it was it was unnerving in the beginning, but it was really cool. Plus the water was just so cold that you didn't really care about that. You were more focused on the water being cold. Yeah. It, that, it was, it was like really yeah. cool. I think the underwater rivers is one of the cooler things to be able to do if you ever can. I'd like to see one. Yeah, kind they're of, in Mex they're in Mexico between uh the cenotes. 
the, the big holes in the ground that yeah. um, the Aztecs and the Mayans uh, used to grab water. For sure, the Mayans, we were not in Aztec land when we did that. So, yeah, that'd be cool. It, Anyway, speaking of like older civilizations, uh, before we're going to jump into our uh, little podcast, I want to talk to you about So You Think You Can Rule Persia. This podcast is really, really fun. I never, I think Persia is one of the more underrated histories. Like Scott, do you know any much, too much about Persia? uh not much other than just like they're rough like supposedly very just hands-off policy as long as you give me money yeah Um, yeah yeah plus the the internal politics is so interesting and there's a lot of stabby stabby (laughs) as as Um, one does when you get a large enough empire my favorite was i think they smoked someone out they like built a fire or something they're gonna i I forgot exactly what but it was like this woman built a room to kill people (laughs) essentially is what it comes down to and uh so it was pretty cool it's nice to know that the the mentality never dies that the uh makes me think of like (laughs) the, the, the rooms that are meant to fire people in yeah like that joke yeah like yeah see it's a it's a different kind of firing (laughs) yeah yeah some things are truly timeless of course and on that note we are going to share with you guys the promotional clip for so you think you can rule persia hi i'm serial and i'm umberto and we're the hosts of so you think you can rule persia a podcast where we rate and review all the kings of Persia from Diochis to Yazdegerd III. Join us for a look at the rulers of Iran, from the Achaemenids all the way to the Sassanids, with plenty in between. We'll be discussing the lives and myths of the rulers of Persia before ranking them all and deciding who is really worthy of the title of King of Kings. We hope to have you along for the ride. Alrighty, now let's get on to our little thing. Sources, we always have to start with that. So other than that, the sources depict him differently. So like what I mean by that is we have some Eastern Roman texts and we have contemporary church documents from Gaul. And of course we have our lovely St. Gregory of Tours and his histories. The Eastern Romans hate Theodobert. They do, Theodobert. They do not like him at all all he uh they called them a double dealing treacherous bastard so you know they <laughs> they compare him to the likes of alaric and geyseric which uh i personally would not mind and then we have uh contemporary church documents from gaul and you learn they have a very different look at the way he goes about his reign they they uh praise him rather than hate him all right, so previously on the quest for power, Scott, what has happened? I can't even remember the guy's name. To be honest, it's really bad. Um, Teuteric. Oh, I was, I see, sometimes I think of that this man is Teuteric because, you know, Teuta Burt <laughs> and Teuteric. So. And then we have Teuta Had. <laughs> um, so uh, we have ourselves last time a Clovis wannabe who kind of just did things the Clovis way, just nowhere near as well. Um, We had, let's see, a couple highlights that I remember, uh, was honestly just 
uh, hey, let me, uh, hey, help me fight this guy and I'll give you half my kingdom. He helps to you, to you, to Rick, helps out, proceeds to just get the rug pulled from under him and says, ha, too bad. You should have, you know, why don't you make me give you half the kingdom now that you've helped me? So, and then he just proceeds to kind of, uh, team up with uh some buddies beat beat the gets it get his revenge and uh does just like a wonderful walk through the garden has him killed allegedly <laughs> um and uh rumors of his death uh in a different war spread around the kingdom someone tries to take over his lands and then everyone has to do an emergency abort because he um as it turns out was alive so uh so there's that and ultimately i guess other stuff ever is he wanted he wanted he wanted hot wife with connections but lost that's that's pretty much mostly i remember oh yeah and he he died of uh probably being angry (laughs) yeah but yeah yeah i kept thinking after that maybe we shouldn't have given him high king but uh it is what it is when we cast the die is cast uh when we go to discuss the um late antiquity kings and like put them against each other we'll uh probably he probably won't make it out of the group stage but what's kind of cool is we actually had for the first time back-to-back high kings we have not had that before yeah that now that you mention it but uh well it's nice that we don't have the scenario of dad does great job son proceeds to just royally just destroy everything that he's done yep yeah i remember you were so tired of of that and you're like i'm excited for a dynasty that doesn't just completely fall apart it's nice (laughs) when you build build. yeah it's nice to have other people walk so you can run yes exactly in this case you're running so you can sprint so i appreciate the uh the lack of uh stupidity well uh, it's nice it's i thought like the way people talk about the merovingians is it would happen right away it sounds like it's gonna happen a little bit deeper but i love the infighting it is true game of thrones like cutthroat infighting between the uh, the family members it's all clovis's fault that it is with that Kneel before to Eudebert the Great of House Merovingian, the first of his name, the Pious, King of Austrasia. Alrighty, so to kind of go for to his uh, pre-reign, we're not going to go into everything that we went last episode because you can just check that out and be a waste of time. To Eudebert is the son uh, and heir of the Austrasian king. Teuteric the first, as we have discussed. Unfortunately, we have no idea who his mother is. It is most likely that she was a wife of Teuteric based on the fact he was an heir, you know, and no challenge to his legitimacy. So that's always going to make it seem like you actually had a mother who was a wife and not a concubine. Yeah. In 531, his father set up a marriage agreement between Teutobert and a Lombard princess named Visgard, and she was the daughter of King 
Waco is the way I'm going to pronounce that. And I'm guessing this was to cement an alliance. I did not really, in my research, was able to find why he did this. But uh, keep in mind, this is going to kind of come up later. And then, as we discussed last week during his father's reign, he got himself into Beowulf. So that's pretty awesome. He defeated King Kolodalak, also known as Hylak in Beowulf, on his father's behalf of the Danish king who, you know, terrorized Northern Gaul. So this military expedition really set him up good. When we said, oh, it sounded like his father just didn't care and just said to him to deal with it. So after he uh, got himself into Beowulf, he increased his fame after a series of military campaigns against the Visigoths in Septimania. Scott, do you know where Septimania is? Um, it just reminds me of Septic. So, uh, <laughs> no. I mean, it is on the bottom of France. It's like right when Spain turns into France, it's that whole like little... Uh, section there that's okay. off the coast of the Mediterranean. Crappy. <laughs> no, it's actually pretty, pretty famous, though. It's uh, it's It's got the famous cities Carcassonne and Narbonne. Mm, and okay. both of them are pretty important to history. Uh, complete side note, Carcassonne, the board game, fantastic. I would highly recommend it. Have you played it? No, I never even heard of it. But oh, I don't play board really games should. as much these days. So. Oh, yeah, that's funny. You're the one who got me into them. Well, I just don't uh, have the group of people I once had to be able to play them. So yeah. I've, got a, I've got a bunch of boxes collecting dust. That's unfortunate. According to our friend Gregory, during one of these campaigns against the Visigoths, he fell madly in love with a woman named Diotria when he met her in the fortified town of Cabris. So she was a Gallo-Roman aristocrat that was somehow related to our previous Sidonis um, Apollinaris, and he was one of our old sources that we used. I think it was for the Visigoths or the Ostrogoths. Obviously, it was, or, wow. Yeah, because I think it was the Visigoths. And uh, Roman Emperor of Etis and Saint of Etis. So she's got quite a bit of uh, interesting positions in her royal in her family. Guess so. Seems like the uh, this entire family is going through the, uh, um, yeah, just finds... Finds random uh, princess, proceeds to fall madly in love or, you know, or politically expedient love. Uh, and... This this one was not politically expedient love. Oh, this well, one just... was, this one was true love. Both of them actually, it really seems like really loved each other and they fell hard. And the reason is while she was living in, while uh Teutobert was attacking the area where he met her uh she was already married and had a daughter named Ida ooh so scandalous i know yeah uh, this yeah this family is just like a very uh passionate bunch 
Oh yeah, yeah. So uh, it seems like it was, uh, again, I'm very confused as to how this even happened. Like, did we hear nothing of the king, of the husband, but she doesn't leave right away when he has to leave because of something later. And uh, so he's just, he's not just a king getting away with a hot married aristocratic woman or a princess, like you said, as expedient. It was just an actual love story, which I don't think we've had yet. Um, not unless you count the, uh, the supposed, uh, his ancestor, you know, running off to another kingdom and then, bringing coming back with a new wife that was uh from oh, another yes that's right marriage that's right so that's all this, like, this is all pretty part of the course for the family at that this is point. true yeah i did i for, completely forgot about that yeah you're correct yeah, this, yeah, this family is just it's... filled with people who are just like they just see some random lady and like i, I likes you and i wants you Oh yeah, because Glo Clovis said the same thing. He's like, uh, "Yeah, give me right now." Yeah, so a bunch of just very uh, passionate and possessive guys. Yes, they and, know and what they want. Yeah. yeah, good for them. <laughs> Gregory makes it very clear. He goes out of his way to show that he disapproves of this little love affair. I mean, he's a bishop. Of course he does. But he goes out of his way to attack Deutria. De yeah, Deutria. And like he paints her as a seductress and a villain because every powerful woman in history needs to be painted that way to historians. Yeah. Well, apparently that's the highest compliment you can get from yeah. that time. Exactly. Yeah, I think, yeah, if you're paid, a, yeah, if they liked you, you were decent. But if uh, they hated you, so, so, chances are you were pretty awesome. Give them the 007 treatment. Yes. The femme fatale. Oh, yep, definitely. Love it. The chronology, the chronology given to us by Mr. Gregory has Teutobert and Deutria having a long enough affair that Deutria becomes pregnant and bears him a daughter. And this is all before he becomes a king. So he is still engaged to Visgard. That is still on the table. And I'm not sure his father would uh, appreciate that. Unfortunately, Greg does uh, not give us their daughter's name and uh, probably because she was, uh, you know, a child born out of sin, not worthy enough to have a name. No such honor. Yeah. In 534, his father, Teutoric, died, as we discussed earlier, from anger, and this made Teutobert king of Austrasia. He was not challenged by any of his nobles. His brothers, on the other hand, will get to. So while he is taking the throne, our podcast has actually had quite the year in 534. The Ostrogoths during this time were busy deposing Queen Amalasuntha in favor of their co-leader, Teotihad, who turned out to be just an awesome king. I mean, right? He was uh, brilliant, especially at war. Yeah, I'm trying to remember. Oh, okay. Uh, so 
remember Amalasuntha? Uh, she was the daughter of Teor. Well, now we'll say it. Teoric the Great. I remember Amalasuntha. And then remember, can't she forget Amalasuntha. And then remember, she had a co-ruler. That just shows how forgettable this guy was. She had a co-ruler because she was a woman, and in that culture, she needed to yep. show. So that was Teoda had. And then what oh, ended okay. up happening um, yeah. is the nobility ended didn't like Amalasuntha because they thought she was in league with Justinian over in Constantinople, so they deposed her. Yep. I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. I just okay. couldn't remember Teoda had. Yeah. And then he ends up becoming yeah, a king I forgot he for existed. a little bit. Exactly. We burnt him at the stake. So that's probably okay. why. All right. Uh, refresher out of the way. Yes. And then in addition to that, we actually have Belisarius conquering the Vandal Kingdom while King Gelimer, you know, throws away every single opportunity to de get uh, to defeat Eastern Romans. But uh, he he doesn't think that uh, he wants to win battles, I guess. So quite a year to come into power, kind of a lot of interesting stuff going on. Yeah, well, things are uh, shaken up, so he has a, a lot of opportunity. Oh yeah, to, yeah to get that's a true. In the door. What is it? Chaos is a ladder. Is a famous Game of Thrones quote from Littlefinger again. Something you need to watch so you understand. Ah, uh, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> uh, who needs it? In five thirty four, Teodoric was probably enjoying time with his newfound love. Yeah, and attacking the Visigoths in his spare time. And uh, a messenger came by to give him the news that his father had passed away. Knowing what happened to his cousins when Clodomer was killed, Teodobert prepared, prepared for war against his power-hungry couple uncles. Wow. Teodobert prepared for war against his power-hungry uncles. Good on him, you know, front run, uh, get get ahead of the issue. It's nice to have a uh, very proactive king, although it seems to be running in the family, to be honest. They're pretty good about this. Yeah, yeah, the Merovingians, they're not falling apart instantly like the Vandals and the Visigoths and, well, no, the Visigoths didn't either, and the uh, Ostrogoths. They had one good king, and then after that, they just went downhill. Helps when you don't just put a bunch of old people in the in the throne. I mean that is that is valid. Yeah, I yeah. don't under. I still I still don't understand why the Vandals did it. Old, and us, old man in a warrior society. That's that's smart. Yep, exactly. So much better. Good job, young little king. After preparing for a little bit of war <laughs> with his uncles, he uh, had to give probably a very tearful and passionate uh, goodbye to Deutria and then a loving uh, goodbye to his daughter. And then he set out with his warriors or his warband and, and he set out to defend his family from his family. I'm taking bets on the, uh, the side with the family. Yeah, exactly. 
So while at war with both his uncles, he somehow impressed or either threatened his uncle Kildebert long enough with his military exploits that Kildebert ended up going, whoa, 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 I'm, we'll just, let's, let's just form an alliance, you know, let's go after Clo Clotaire. I don't need, I don't, we, we shouldn't be fighting, even though I just tried to take your kingdom from you. And not only that, Theodebert got Kildebert to adopt him as heir. So not only did Kildebert let him keep his kingdom, he also potentially gave his kingdom to Theodebert. Potentially. Potentially. Yeah, if he doesn't just uh, renege on that on that promise. Yeah, exactly. Oh, his, son, his son must be really incompetent if he's just like, you know what, I'm willing to let you be the next man in charge or he's a true visionary and is just like you know what let's just reunify a lot of these lands go ahead I, yeah. don't screw don't screw over my people please or <laughs> what if he had like so many sons that he knows it would be like they'd be cut up into like you know they each got a hundred square miles and that's about it <laughs> you know you don't have to like you don't have to divide the land up equally amongst all of your potential heirs you can you, just pick but you love all your children equally only the sons equally <laughs> that's right you only love the sons equally um however despite what they say parents still have a favorite yeah it just it just does not make sense to have an equality thing in an author authoritarian reign that just makes I mean, zero you're a parent you, you have a favorite child right yeah, I do have a favorite child. You are correct on that. Exactly. See, our our sample size, our sample is one hundred percent in the affirmative here. So that is that is that is true. Disclaimer: There's only one child. Um, <laughs> so, um, but yeah, no, no, it's it's just kind of a wild thing that he's just so theoretically willing to. Maybe he's just one of those like, well, I'm going to die, you know, I'll be dead after this kingdom is, you know, or I'll be dead. I'll give this kingdom to whoever I want to. Or maybe he's like, I just don't want Clotaire getting it. Mm, yeah. That could, could be have been too. out of spite. I mean, he, the, yeah. the brothers love to fight. Or he's the weakest, or he's the weakest king. That is possible. Uh, I, we will find out in his episode. He and his favorite uncle, Kildebert, began preparing for a massive battle against his least favorite uncle, Clotaire. The stage was set. A storm was brewing between the family members. Quite literally. Just as, about they, were, just as they were about to cause rivers of blood and death and destruction, a massive storm came and attacked both armies. Like a like a actual storm. An actual storm. <laughs> this actually happened. I I don't know if you recall what, what this uh this is Clotilda prayed for this storm. Yeah, yeah. It just yeah it just feels like this is where like not not quite the right time, but you're then this is where you go. And then Attila showed up. <laughs> just out of nowhere you know that's that's kind of what the, the storm feels like 
Exactly. It was because um, Clotilda didn't want her sons and her family to be torn apart by war that, you know, she prayed for peace. And for some reason, they never fought again. Like at, at this point, like uh, they finally went, okay, yeah, I guess we'll just have peace between us and start attacking other people, I, I guess. I, I I can't Sign believe God, it. You know, the most backstabby family I have researched yet, and yet they actually went through with a promise. I'm I'm shell shocked. Yeah, well, you gotta. It's not really much of a backstab if uh, you don't have any promises to lay the foundation first. No one's surprised. No, no one's surprised when you betray somebody if you do it all the time. No, they did. The truth. They did promise their father or their mother that they wouldn't. At some point, I remember, I recall seeing it that they did promise him that, as like a, to honor him. Oh, well, I guess they're being held to their word, whether they like it or not. <laughs> yeah. Now his kingdom was finally at peace. And during peacetime is when you can actually do some administrative stuff. He just went for the biggest administrative thing right away. He's like, I'm just going to knock this out of the way. And then we'll, all the other stuff will be downhill from here. Uh, what I mean that by that is he began minting his own coins that were stamped with the images of himself and not the Emperor Justinian. He is the first Frankish king to do that. Yeah, we ain't part of Rome. We yeah, we don't need this. Yeah, that's that is correct. But for some reason, the Frankish kings up to this point have let themselves be inferior to the Constantinople emperor. So by doing this, he, it was the biggest F you to Justinian that he could give. And basically like, uh, what are you going to do about it? Yeah, we're all the way over here and you're over there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He's like, I am not your inferior. I am your equal or better is, is what he made very loud and clear by minting his own coins. And obviously controlling the flow of money gives you enormous amounts of power. Yes. Yeah. No, oh, I think this is one of those where Justinian's like, why don't you come over east and say that? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I hear you from all the way over there. Yes. So as you recall, he's still engaged to Visgard and is subject to an agreement between to make her queen consort of Austrasia. But to Udebert instead brought Dutria back home. He married her and he made her queen consort of Austrasia. I'm sure that went over like a lead balloon. <laughs> uh, yeah, I can't believe he was able to pull this off and not be immediately dethroned. Uh, I, normally, I would say this is not smart at all, but especially because the Merovingians, they get like a free pass at having multiple wives and concubines. So 
he just didn't have to make her queen consort of Austrasia. He could have just married her as a queen and then went and married Visgard as a queen, made her queen consort, but really just did things with Viutria and that was it. Crucially, they got married. Very, very important during this period. So now they are no longer committing the sin of making love out of wedlock. And as a result, a baby boy named Theobald is born from the newlyweds. And he is a legitimate heir because they are married. Good for him. Not like in the name, though, bald and, you know, a family that prides itself on hair. That is true. That I is know funny. that the language is obviously not. It's still you know, funny. Yeah, I never yeah. thought of that. Just yeah, this this is where uh, hereditary yeah, where the uh, hereditary baldness starts kicking in. Yeah, exactly. Can't rule anymore. So he's still at peace uh, during the year five thirty five. He convened the Council of Claremont, and we'll go into the details of this further and religious passion, but we can at least have our residential DM narrate the prayer that Theodobert said that was said for Theodobert in the opening of the council, and only part of it is preserved. Only part of it? I wonder what happened to the rest of it. The rest must not have been very interesting. Or maybe it, this was the full end and it just looked like it was part of it. We prayed to the Lord for his rule, for long life, and for his people, that our Lord, who has granted authority over our community, will bring good fortune to his realm and will guide his state and administer justice. I know it seems like a small thing, but this is the only recorded 6th or 7th century opening prayer for a king in any council all through Roman Gaul, which is not even Clovis got that. Wow. What a what an upstanding man. Exactly. So remember how I keep talking? I, this episode must be like a uh, trip down memory lane, memory lane. Because you remember how I kept talking that Amalasuntha was deposed the year he came to power? Yes. Well, by this time, she had been strangled in her bathhouse and the gothic war kicked off in italy yeah yep so while sitting high on his throne just chilling managing his kingdom enjoying his wife and daughter and and new son a courier comes by and drops a letter for, off to him for his eyes only specifically this letter was from constantinople and actually Emperor Justinian himself. It's pretty impressive that Justinian actually deemed him worthy enough to write to him himself and not just mm -hmm. have someone else. Some you know, schmuck. Yeah. Yeah. So he obviously could have had it dictated, but he could have had, you know, like Belisarius dictate like he did with the Goths. So it's that that says miles. In the letter, Justinian asked the leaders of the Franks, so he must have sent this to all the brothers, for assistance against those evil, heretical Aryan Goths. 
in the letter, he goes on about how the Empire and the Franks, they, they share Nicene Christianity and remind him that of his earlier conflicts between the Gothic kingdoms and the Frankish kingdoms. So he's basically like, we share the same like love of Nicene and hate Aryans. And also remember that time when you two fought and that's, that was what he was trying to use to get him to ally with him. Pen and paper is much cheaper than uh, getting a bunch of soldiers together. So you can get some free labor out of uh, laying it on a little thick. Seems like a pretty good deal to me. It could be. Also, I don't know if this is a good, this is a good deal. He felt the need to send a payment in advance to all the kings. So the three kings to basically with the ask of support and a promise that once more Frankish forces arrive in Italy, they get a lot more. Seems like a good deal to me. Yeah, so while he is uh, pondering about that letter, not quite deciding what he wants to do, another courier comes by with another letter for his eyes only. And this one is from Italy. And it's actually from our previous king, King Vitigus, uh, our episode 21 king, actually. Mm -hmm. And he also sought an alliance with him. And he offered to give actual territory that the Franks and the Goths have been arguing over for quite some time and often uh, under aggressive negotiations. Wow. There you go. So two pretty outstanding offers. Which one would you grab? Uh, take the territory. Yeah, that's that's what I would do, too. Yeah, side with your neighbors because um, they can actually hurt you. Rome probably can't. Yeah. Well, Rome has far reaching. They're all the way back in uh, Africa, so they could send an invasion fleet. Yeah, and but they have the infrastructure to do so. Yeah, it's a lot of work though. So, you know, supply supply uh, lines are a very demanding thing. Well, at this time, there's a very demanding emperor <laughs> yeah, that's, named that's, Justinian. That's very, if there's anyone who can, uh, you know, re retake an awful lot of land for the sake of retaking land. It's, it's Justinian, that's for sure. Yeah, exactly. So after looking at both these letters, he was thinking, well, what should I do? What should I do? He pens a letter off to Constantinople, which makes arrangements that, he, hey, I'm going to provide some military support and uh, provided there's payment. And he is the only one of the Frankish kings that seem to have responded to Justinian. Wow. It's kind of surprising. Kind of interesting. And even though he sends a letter off to Constantinople, he wanted this cake and to eat it too. He and his uncles start just not blatantly, but covertly sending support to the Gothic forces in exchange for the disputed land and conveniently forgot to tell Constantinople that their land was expanded. Hey, you know, again, what are they going to do? A lot of land between us and them. Exactly. So this whole covert um, plots are going on for a while. 
And uh, we're going to pause that for a little bit because sometime in the late 530s, disaster struck the royal family. Their young daughter died in a bizarre accident near Verdun. That area has to be cursed by an angry god or something. Not just World War One. That one that alone. Was my first thought. That one alone is the reason that area is cursed. But like, I think there's so many different battles where things just go horribly wrong. So I'm sorry if you live there. <laughs> yeah. But uh, according to the depressing tale. The young princess was riding in a carriage over that bridge when something spooked the animals that were pulling the vehicle. None of the guards or attendants were able to get the animals back under control and the carriage plummeted off the bridge into the river below. By the time any rescuers could reach the sinking wreck, the king and queen's young daughter had already drowned. When I was researching this late at night, that one hurt big time. Hmm. That one uh, that one gave me a f showed me a fear that I didn't know I had. Unfortunately, when something horrible happens to a child, it is uh, to a child, uh, it's quite common for the loving parents relationship to fracture. It, it, I don't know what it is in our psychology, but it is very, very common that a death of a child will cause uh, parents who have been in a very healthy relationship before get divorced. Um, not always, but sometimes. And sadly, that is what happened to Deutria and Teuteric. So that's really kind of unfortunate. But Gregory feels like he needs to throw salt in the wound and twist the dagger in for Deutria. And he really embellishes this tale. He, I mean, this is, I don't know how he came up with this. He claims that the princess's carriage was pulled by untamed bulls and that it wasn't an accident, but an evil premeditated murder by Deutria of her own daughter. Why? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Why, you ask? Well, it's obvious she had her own daughter killed because Deutria feared King Teutobert would be more sexually attracted to his own daughter more than herself. Logical. So she needed to die a horrible death because of this. Log yeah, yeah, logical. This is, it's the first thing I thought of. Exactly. Um, I, I, yeah, there, I had some rage while reading this. I was like, are you kidding me? How did you come up with this? So I just feel the need to take it apart. Pretty confident that someone would notice there's a bull attached to the carriage instead of a horse. And if it's part of some conspiracy, there is no way that that many people like all the way from the lay people up to the nobility that were involved would have been able to keep that a secret. And then only Gregory and his deprived mind would actually think that Deutria would actually believe the, that the king, who had many wives and many concubines, like most Merovingian kings, he had his pick of what he wanted, that he would have desires to screw his own daughter, who's on the under the age of 10, and lust for her so much that he would replace Eutria as queen consort. So uh, that's what Gregory thinks. Well, he's, uh, you know, vested in spinning a story, yeah? Gotta I mean, make yeah. his mark on history. 
I know, but how did you come up with that one? You know, he probably is just doesn't like her. He hates her. Yeah. He hates her. I don't understand what she did to him if she killed his pet, you know, dog or something like that. Obviously not. He was born way after she died. But well, you know, historians can be callous. They, yeah, yeah, definitely. In 537 or 538, he and Deutria actually finally legally separated. And it is at this time Teutobert decided that, hmm, maybe I should marry my actual fiance, the princess, uh, the Lombardia princess Viscard, and he made her queen consort of Austrasia. So he did come through on his promise. Just a long time after. I believe yeah, seven just, years just after. A, just took a horrible breakup to make it happen. Exactly. And unfortunately, though, Viscard soon died after they were wed. And uh, I am I was getting the vibe from the sources that she just died from being medieval. Like, you know, yeah. any kind of sickness. Yep. Wrong place, wrong time syndrome. <laughs> yeah, exactly. She, she died from, yeah, being in the medieval times. Or in this case, late antiquity. Yeah, yeah. All right. Take uh to, to let's uh go from back from a sad tale back to war. In 539, Teutobert did come through on another promise and he brought troops to Italy. And he actually brings a massive army into northern Italy. He gets paid handsomely by the Romans for this. And both factions welcomed the invasion. Both of them thought he was they were gonna help them out. That was my first question. I'm like, whose side whose side is he on? Do you remember during Vitigus's episode or just the, the the King's episode, the Ostrogothic episode, where the Romans and the Ostrogoths had just fought this horrific battle at Milan, you know, where both sides just took an absolute beating and it would take some time for them to recover. And then a Frankish force descended from the mountains and wiped both factions out. Mm. Uh, it rings a bell. Well, that that Frankish force was to Utebert and his Frankish warriors. They ended up raiding and pillaging the lands controlled by both the Romans and the Ostrogoths before having to leave due to dysentery running through their ranks. Oh, it's going to run. All right. <laughs> it's like the definition of dysentery. Yeah, no, that's good. Yeah. Good so on I, It's always fun when our uh, kings intersect quite like that, especially like a, that are, that see a different side of that story where it seems like to the you know to the romans and ostrogoths that hey we got help on the way oh no they're coming to kill all of us yeah yeah why, why do you have swords so precopius to uh really show how evil this was he wants to make you believe that some members of teutobert's massive frankish army was carrying out pagan worship including human sacrifice I would have stopped at Pagan and I probably would have believed him, but the whole human sacrifice thing erases all credibility of the statement. 
And it's not because pagans didn't do that. It's because this is what Constantinople's like propaganda was of everyone who's against us are Satan worshipers and love to make love to hell's demons and they sacrifice priests and virgins and all that. That was what Constantinople loved to write about at this time. These guys like heavy metal. Exactly. Get them out. They're demon worshippers. Yeah, no, it's laying it on too thick. Just a bit. As you expect. And uh, also, as we discussed in the Ostrogoths and Vandal episodes when he was writing about that, Procopius has no way of knowing what's going on actually in the ranks of these warriors or kingdoms. He only knows what's going on with Rome. He busted out the Ouija board. There you go. That's where he got his information. Yeah. Probably, yeah, like, just pulls out, like, yeah, some scrying materials. And... <laughs> yeah. I mean, you just make stuff up. Yeah, he must have rolled, like, a nat 20 every time and therefore got, uh, was able to see everything. That's right. So the Franks must have gotten the dysentery under control, because while the Ostrogoths and the Eastern Romans continued to be at each other's throats if during our long, drawn-out Gothic War that we endured... Teutobert was seized control over significant regions of northern Italy, especially like the fertile ones, to really help his kingdom out. So, pretty good yeah. deal for him. Yeah, he get uh, yeah gets the best of both worlds. Exactly. Maybe even he'll convince both sides that he was helping them. <laughs> you yeah, know, really, I'm just like, you, like yeah, worry. well. You're taking you're taking land. Well, it's taking it from the Goths. Well, you're taking yeah, and then the other guy's like, Well, I was taking it from Rome. Exactly. <laughs> that is how you can agree and come through with both your promises. So I guess he did. He does follow through with his promises. As long as you have an army, no one can call you out on it. Exactly. Like, and you're do? good and you're good at leading that army. You can have an yeah. army, great one of the greatest armies, and be a pathetic commander as Rome has demonstrated over and over and over and over again. And now that uh, they're over their dysentery, they literally don't give a shit. <laughs> Solid. That was top notch right there. I worked hard on that. I'm sure you did. And then, according to the Eastern Roman historian Agatius, he was killed by a bison during a hunt impressive i yeah that's the last thing i expected it's, it's same <laughs> uh his son teodobald was crowned king in his place and there was no challenge to his accession which is pretty freaking rare for the merovingians some little lasting notes while the eastern romans absolutely hated him the gallic sources painted a very different picture they celebrated his many military successes inside and outside of gaul that for some reason sources did not want to tell us about but he had a ton of success it sounds like oh, cool. the administrative achievements also he had to his kingdom was greatly lauded by his contemporaries his contemporaries loved him uh in terms of what he did for the kingdom and the, the church so he brought a more order again he br brought coinage the the ability to control that and really stabilized his kingdom yeah seems like pretty good pretty good uh rap sheet so far 
Yeah, so the, along with that, uh, both historians Mar Marius of Event of Event Case and Gregory gives him the title of Magnus, which is pretty rare. Do you know what that title means? It's said in quite a bit of things. Um, I do not know particularly what it is. It is translated from Latin to mean the great or the greatest. Hmm. Or not the greatest, or greatness. So that literally means Theodoric, Theodobert the Great. Marius does this because of his many successes militarily, diplomatically, and administratively inside and outside of Gaul. Gregory, being a bishop, gives him this praise because of his massive passion for the church. And someone who actually interacted with Theodobert, clergymen are clergy member Ventus Fortunus praised his piety, just went up and down and praised it. This man, and by this man, I mean Theodobert, was loved and adored and praised by the Gallic Church. We actually have a formal eulogy on record. And it says... You mean it doesn't say that um, bison are bad? <laughs> no, no, it does not say bison are bad. They uh, should have. Really it would have been good out. warning. Would have been a yeah, good warning. Like we could have written a limerick about this or something. I did not know bison were in Europe. I guess I should have known, but I had no idea. I thought they were. That was only... my first thought. I thought they were in only North America. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I had a similar thought as that. Yeah, I. Well, yeah, I, I initially thought I'm like, oh, I'm like, is that a an, an American native? species but i guess not you learn okay, something new every day apparently not he showed himself to be great and outstanding in all goodness for he ruled his realm with justice venerating the bishops giving to the churches relieving the poor and freely making any pious benefactions he generously remitted all the taxation that had been paid to the treasury by the churches in the Auvergne. He is the only king in all of Gregory's work to get a formal eulogy. Not even Clovis got one. Kind of weird. Kind of weird, but also pretty impressive. Uh, one thing I need to say, for every good thing that Gregory wrote about Teodobert, he felt the need to throw in like some backhanded, you know, but he was involved in this evil scheme. But he had too many wives. Exactly. Yeah. They yeah, the church the tones the tones weird. Yeah, the church didn't like it, but again, it's kind of like they're the ones who gave them the power. So Yeah, I don't I don't get it. Neither do I. That is all I have for Teutobert. Are you ready to rate him? Yep. Royal power. So at the beginning of the reign, he minted his own coins, given the bird to a very powerful Emperor Justinian immediately. Like he did this immediately upon being crowned king. He didn't like wait around to do this. He secured his kingdom right away from the greedy hands of his uncles and even got one of them to name him heir. He got Rome to give him enormous amounts of money for an alliance. 
and their rivals, the Goths, to give him land, and then he attacked both of them for their for their generosity. He also uh, there's a document that Justinian was asking him back when they actually were okay talking to to each other of uh hey what kind of land do you got and he kind of claims he had quite a bit of land surrounding Austrasia and no one has um challenged that huh and then at his death the kingdom peacefully transitioned to his son which is pretty darn miraculous in this era yeah died in a peaceful manner I mean, all things considered. I don't know if that's getting mauled by a bison's peaceful. I guess it's better in a sword. From a power standpoint, it's peaceful. Yeah, correct. From a power I never said it wasn't painful. (laughs) But uh, unless unless the the bison in question immediately just like yoinked his crown upon death and was like, this is now, this is now, you know, I am now king. Long live the king. And, uh, you know, and then now France is ruled by bison overlords. That would be uh, a <laughs> D and that would be a D and D campaign plot. Yeah, yeah, it really would. So, uh, so unless that happened and the uh, the bison in question was usurping the throne, I feel like this is pretty peaceful, all things considered. If someone ever has bison usurping the throne in your campaign, let us know because I want to hear about it. We are not trademarking it at all. Take it and steal it and run with it. Yeah, this needs to happen now. <laughs> bison people. There's not even bison people in like just like default setting. Like, you know, any any official publications for D&D for at least 5th edition. Yeah, I can't There's imagine no there bison would be bison people. There are elephant yeah. people, cat people, Lizard people, mushroom people, no bison people. No, I guess minotaurs are like close. Minotaurs are kind of like bison people. They're bull people. Yeah. (laughs) You could just uh, homebrew using the base of a minotaur, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, I'll have to make a race of bison people. Bison and bison people. That's going to be the leaders, bison and bison. There we go. This this shows up in our campaign, I would absolutely die. It's nautical, and there's a lot of islands. I can make whatever I want. Exactly. So, what are you thinking? Feels like when you, it feels less impressive because Gregory is a very pessimistic fellow, apparently. Yes, it's just the the thing that there's a lot of painting on this. The thing that's most impressive to me is that both. The ones that the sources that hate him in Constantinople and the ones that love him in Gaul all make it very clear that he is the most powerful king in Gaul at this time. Yeah. Um, I mean, this feels just kind of like um, in like an eight to me. Just on the merit that, like, he's doing great stuff. It's just not, like, leaps and bounds to me. Like, it's pretty darn good, though. You know, just feels like there's a little room for wiggle room. I'm going to give it a nine. What pushes it to that is that minting his own coins. That Mm, Yeah, that's fair. I can't understate how important that is and how much influence that plays in in a kingdom or a faction. 
I mean, shoot, it still it plays a big role today. Exactly. There's a you know a kind of a a fight, you know, quote unquote, for uh, you know currency dominance. It's a thing. Yep. Yes, there is. So, granted, the 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 implications back then versus today are far different. But in the end, as it turns out, money equals power. <laughs> Shocking. Maybe yeah. a royal power is how much money did they have? <laughs> yeah. If you buy today's standards, yeah. So eight and nine for seventeen. On to the next one. So uh let's go on to something a little interesting. Infamy. He seduced a married woman. He had a no, child. She with... seduced him. Thank you very much. <laughs> she was the seductress. The... Uh femme fatale let's just say he stole a married woman or not even stole um he got a married woman to leave her husband not just boyfriend but husband that's that's pretty impressive and uh, pretty infamous at this time could you imagine that at this time like right now that'd be a horrible dick move but at this time that's in that would i mean that you'd be pretty infamous yeah, you'd be pretty freaking infamous for that. And not only that, you had a child with her out of wedlock on top of that. So that alone would carry your infamy pretty big. Yeah, yeah, that's that's big by today's standards. Everyone, mm-hmm. A lot of people would hate you for that today. Oh, yeah. And even in back then with the church, whoo, that was a very... Divorce was a no-no. Remember, King Henry VIII way later had to change in an entire religion to get divorced several times right that would be uh yes correct two times divorced oh okay i thought it was more well no it goes it goes uh divorced beheaded died divorced beheaded survived that's yeah that's, I, I remembered there being a large number of wives but i guess yeah as it turns out execution's a pretty good way to get around divorce yeah exactly no no need and even the divorce wasn't a divorce it was technically an annulment which means yes spiritually the the marriage never happened yeah you know quibbling over words words are pretty important in this era but yes i guess so uh, not only that, he married her and it most importantly made her queen consort while he already had an agreement with a princess over in Italy to make her queen consort. And she was his fiance for a lot longer. Feels like this man is free of consequences. He, he, he That's what I'm saying. His power must have been ridiculous because no, no one went after him. He, he could do what he wanted. And well, who's, uh, yeah, who's going to go after him, right? That, I, that's always, I, yeah. I almost want to change it to like a 10 just because nobody went after him and he did some insane yeah. crap. Um, well, a little bit. Uh, all he, right. Well, let's let's talk numbers. We'll talk. Uh, yeah. Oh, uh, one final thing. I can't, you can't forget the whole double dealing against the Goths and the Romans. That's a pretty mm. big one as well. Is that smart or infamous? <laughs> i think it depends on how upset the parties were at the end of the deal oh uh uh procopius uh was very very upset <laughs> at the mm. time so um all right so let's talk numbers so 
out of 10, I mean, it feels pretty infamous, but like, I don't know. It's it's another like, it's not quite there for me. In, in light of what you can do as far as infamy goes. Um, feels like another eight to me. This one's really fun, juicy gossip, not just murdery infamy. And uh, so I'm going to go with a nine because of the whole the whole package of marrying an already married woman having a child with her out of wedlock before that and then you make her queen consort but you were supposed to make another one queen consort that whole beautiful package to me is a nine alone yeah the uh the karens of the world would be having a field day and in the Karens and in the the clergy were having a field day, I'm sure. Apparently, not much of one. This man seemed to have escaped all consequences. You are yes, you are correct. So you know, I'm. Yeah, it's just kind of oh, weird. Also, also there was some backstabbing in his court, and oh, he okay. and he and he, what was it? He was a benefactor of a either like priest or bishop that got himself into some hot water that was another thing that gregory complained about okay yeah so i'll stick by it just like i mean definitely pretty scandalous even by today's day and age oh yeah yeah people would people would be very people would raise their eyebrows at you oh yeah definitely you could get canceled on twitter you would get or x x you forgot <laughs> i got my i'm i have my my boomer mentality here so yeah uh, what the heck yeah can't let go of the past all right so eight and nine for 17 all right religious passion uh let's let's summarize the whole category the church loved him he had a very close and approving relationship with and they had a very close and approving relationship with the king. As we stated earlier, he uh, convened the Council of Claremont in 535. 17 canons, also known as church laws, were created at this council. And to summarize what they came up with is uh, this. Don't bring your personal problems to council meetings. We don't care. Clergy can't go crying to secular authorities for help in disagreements with their superiors. So you can't go to a king and say, hey, can you depose this bishop because he won't let give me what I want. Okay. And uh, bishop who seek the support of kings. So basically, if a bishop asks, hey, can I be king? And then the, uh, I mean, if uh, not a bishop, if a clergy member asks the bishop, asks to be a bishop and they become a bishop that is a huge no-no or that they make like a fake election document saying that they are a bishop because you have to be elected i think as a bishop at this time or something around that uh and by elected is not our standard elected it's yeah just like some council in some back room just goes yep good enough some council (laughs) or even kings just make the election depending where you're at a one-man election yeah yeah basically if you do this you are the worst kind of human being 
worst kind of spirit. You are excommunicated and you will be sent straight to hell when you die in their eyes. The council also feels the need to state that they strongly oppose Christian Jewish marriages. This is going to be a, this one's on the lighter end. This is going to be a common thing whenever we talk about these damn church councils is they got to find some way to stick it to the Jews. And then uh, one one final one is that they they also want to make sure that they make clear that they oppose marriages among relatives. Except for Boy, the royalty. That's, yeah, that's going to be broken a couple times. Yeah, just a little bit. And and they also disagree with bad behavior by clergy members. They feel the need that they also need to state that. It honestly feels like uh, a lot of these points are, you could roll it up into royal power in the sense that these all feel like factors that place more power back in the hands of the king or like it, you know, sets a bunch of like rules that limit the like individual like bishops or churches power. Not to say the church isn't still really powerful, but it completely kills um it it completely kills uh class mobility. Exactly. I mean, yeah, yeah. It that's it basically yeah, any any local uh you know bishop, parishioner, whatever are uh yeah, it feels like that their power is pretty much killed yeah yeah you can't yeah you can't ask for anything and it has to be approved by somebody either other bishops or a king or the pope this feels like at the local level you know your your church power is apart from a cultural influence is kind of i don't want to say dead because it's not true the church is still really powerful but it's got some very you know it, it yeah. puts the the final say in the hands of the king at the end of the day and and uh just some extra knowledge as well he spent a lot of money on the church he had a very close relationship with um sev- uh, a bishop i forgot the bishop's name uh i think with several bishops actually the I mean, you saw how much the church loved him for what he did for the church. He, they talked more about him than I saw them talk about Clovis, and Clovis got France to, you know, convert. Yeah. Well, again, there's there's a difference between official conversion and just like people actually following the. This the faith, is right? people actually following the faith because he got him to he. I mean, he built up he gave the ability for these bishops to build big, beautiful cathedrals and things like that with uh, ill-gotten gains from Rome, probably. (laughs) Yeah, you know, this man does it all. He was uh, at war and built churches. Exactly. The the, the saying is dead. Can't build churches while you're at war. This man uh, proves Uh, him wrong. Yeah. Granted, he Um, wasn't at war the whole time. Yeah. So, yeah, some good stuff. Talk numbers. Talk numbers. All right. Um, I mean, it seems like a pretty glowing recommendation. Uh, Obviously, there's nothing like, you know, there's no Inquisitions rolling around as far as we know of. There's no, uh, he's not engaging in philosophical debate. He's just, you know, throwing a lot of government resources at this. Uh, 
to me this speaks to be like another eight to me <laughs> really i was thinking this is uh he this shows passion we talked this is passion not just what you did he, it seems like he had a lot of passion for the church um despite his other activities i think it's a 10 because he was way more passionate than to me clovis and i judge him based on the times i know there's an inquisition coming but i don't think we can judge them based on what is to come because you know what is to come is canons in terms of royal power or the whole holy roman emperor empire so for this time i'm gonna say it's a full 10. yeah um i'm still sticking by the eight and i think a lot of it is just that you know it just feels like a soft uh power to me like hey i'm putting a lot of government resources behind this and i'm going to convince people right this isn't remember yeah remember though how much the church influences people's lives like it is oh everything. yeah yeah no I, I i get it it's just like one of those things of yeah, and he me, also just... not not just he didn't just throw money at it. He also had like a really good relationship with the priests, with the bishops. He didn't just go, here's your money and go away. He actually had them. In fact, one of them uh, that he had, he commonly told what he did wrong all the time. He would go, you're doing this wrong. You're doing this wrong. You're doing this wrong. And the king did nothing. He enjoyed his company. Yeah, it just, I don't know, it feels like, you know, it's super, it feels like that we're missing um, a little bit of passion. You know, Interesting. Again, okay. Just, you know, where, you know, he doesn't have really any opposition, you know. He doesn't I have opposition like, in anything. What? He doesn't have opposition in anything. Yeah, this is really the man who had it all. Uh, like, <laughs> But, yeah, it's just kind of one of those things where it just kind of feels like, you know that he you know he works well with with the church does things well you know hand it again the church is kind of like a second government body in its own way so i think he makes it that way yeah it, and... it just feels like very contractually governmental to me mm. just okay that he works well with them has good relationship probably a believer because the entire family mythology is just steeped in faith at this point yeah, um, it's just uh pretty passionate just not quite there but that's that's just me so i stick with the eight yeah hell his grandmother's a saint yeah again well another relative too yeah yeah so we're yeah the entire the entire family is just yeah steeped in faith so eight and a ten for 18 let's talk about stability uh, so despite us not really talking about it, Gregory talks about how his senior courtiers were plotting and murdering each other, as you do, uh, you know, in any basically court of Europe, we just don't, since they were like the small fry, we just don't get to hear about their everyday, you know, nonsense, um, about them killing each other. They care more about kings killing each other. Or if they kill a king. Uh, so we have that. And the Bishop of Verdun who gives, here it is, the Bishop of Verdun who gives the, who the king like gives is a patron of, he's involved in this murderous feud going back and forth. 
while the king is a patron of him. So that's also kind of a little blight on stability. Positive, he again, he created coinage. That is, I cannot state that enough. How huge that is, how much that can stabilize a kingdom. Uh, it's he stabilized the faith as well. It, there was uh, quite a bit of stabilization going on. Uh, he he held his kingdom together like right away when it could have fallen apart easily in the beginning when his uh, uncles attacked him, but he kept everything strong. So, what are you thinking? Uh, a four. Ex- yep, we'll actually match this time. I'm thinking a four. Yeah. Because honestly, the big one again is just talking about the relationship with the church. Yeah, it's just maybe because like I was involved, like steeped in some of the research. Uh, it just really seemed to me like he was like not just half in; he was full into the church. There wasn't there wasn't a little you know dipping my toe in the water, go away type deal. I'm not, yeah, I'm not getting that impression. It's just, um, in that, yeah, that, that, that's okay. That's, that's yeah. why we yeah, each he's got get a little points. He's got some oomph. Yeah. So, yeah, he does. You know, it's just my cynical brain views, you know, again, second yeah. government body, sometimes it just views it as a politically advisable course of, or an, a good people to, uh, politically ally yourself with. Very, yes. Royal demise. Being killed from a bison is a new one. Bye, son. I never saw that coming. Neither did he, apparently. <laughs> no, that's, I mean, it's kind of cool. It, it, you know, it's not all that in a bag of chips. It's new. That's just, a, it's, it, it, it's, is, it's it very is original. Yeah, it's, it's very original. I mean, how many people do you think, like, die while hunting, you know? Oh, the hunting part is, is, yeah. Correct. The hunting part isn't that original. That one's very yeah. Died that, by boar. They they quote unquote die by hunting all the time. You know, basically that too. But like yeah. actually die while hunting. You know. Yeah, like, and that did that does happen quite a bit. Yeah, as if well. for people who can see, there were air quotes being held in the in the air. Um, <laughs> yes, died while hunting. Died while hunting, in the literal and. Uh, I don't know what you want figurative figurative sense yeah both pretty common but like actually genuinely speaking especially back in the day hunting was kind of a could be a very dangerous sport depending on what Mm. it is you're hunting boars are no jokes yes i was gonna say wild boar is a great example they have killed many kings princess not princesses it's princes. still dangerous to hunt boar yes you know? it is very those, dangerous those skulls are thick yeah you need like a 50 cal to end that one yeah they're yeah they got tough skulls so um yeah so you know either with a murderous family or murderous animals hunting is just dangerous so for me it kind of like i was like yeah the bison was surprising the hunting, less so. A three for me. Um, I really like the bison. I'm going to go four. I just really enjoy that. I never saw that coming. I didn't know bison were in the... Yeah, that that was the most exciting part was learning, in learning that bison were a thing. Yeah, uh, in Europe. Bye, son. So three and a four for seven. 
Legacy. This one, he struggles a little bit because I don't know about you, but I've never heard about him before this. I didn't hear about a lot of people in this That is, that is very true. Either have I. Um, but it doesn't seem like he has that big of a legacy that leaves him. He does a lot of things. Again, the big one, and it's mass, he's going to get massive points for this, is the coins. I'm going to keep bringing it up because it is that important. It is the first time a Frankish king minted their own coins. Pretty freaking powerful. Being in Beowulf, I almost forgot about that. Being in Beowulf for slaying a giant's pretty, pretty, uh, leaves a little bit of a legacy considering Beowulf is uh, pretty popular even today. And he seemed to make an impression on the Ro Eastern Romans because they complained about him a lot. And even after he's dead, they bitch about him to his son. And he left an impression on the Gallic church. They just, oof, he was raised up as this great, beautiful king uh, years after he was dead. Um, I mean, it feels, you know, fairly strong. We can't, yeah, we can't judge and like, oh, have you heard of him? That is true. That, that Yeah, that's why we do this podcast is so you guys can listen, learn about most of our kings I've never heard of. I, mean, I never knew about most I imagine most people around you know the world maybe have never heard a lot of these guys yeah yeah no the biggest one obviously everyone knows is Attila and maybe yeah, yeah. Theodoric the Great maybe uh Alaric and maybe Geyseric but the rest of them even yeah. some of our other hikings nope yeah yeah so I mean it's definitely a consideration but uh coins are a big one for me Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, you know, the church is kind of a nice one. Overall, it's like, what did he leave behind? And this is always kind of a tough one because it ties into power and stability. But like, you mm -hmm. know, left behind a successful kingdom that he did with uh, with its own, you know, currency now, and a nice cozy relationship with the church. Feels like it's in the positives for me, which which is good. Um. Know, this feels like a seven or six six um well i'm just gonna do this based on how many points he earns for each thing uh the coins are massive for me that's five points automatically uh being in beowulf i'll give him a one for that uh the impression of the eastern romans i really enjoy that <laughs> how much they hate him uh i'll give him a one for that and that he left an impression on the church i'll give him a one for that so Eight points for me. Eight points, huh? All right. So to tally it all up, um, you know, six and eight for 14. But the end result being my slightly more pessimistic 37 to your slightly more optimistic 44. Wow, I think this is the most we've ever been divided. I must have been in a great mood and you must have been in a... <laughs> I don't want to tear this, <laughs> this man apart. For a difference of seven points. It's a lot. So that's quite a bit. Still, eighty one is mighty impressive, regardless of that our is. pessimism or optimism. So does he have that might not be enough. 
you know, he does have a high score, but you are feeling pretty pessimistic today. Do you think that he has that epicness to be crowned as high king or is he kind of bland and he should be sacked and become a minor lord? Or is he so abysmal that we should burn him at the stake? I mean, he feels pretty high kingish to me. Yeah, me too. Pretty easy Just, on yeah. that one. He he engages my uh, pragmatic brain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, hey, you know, when you do everything right and you have zero consequences for when you, you, know, you really didn't do much wrong, when you have zero consequences for when you do things wrong to the faith, sometimes it's good to be the king. Yes, it is. I just, everything he could do, like, I'm. it might affect consequences, like, down the road, but we don't know that. Uh, during his reign, he could do whatever he wanted, it appears like. I mean, within reason. He could, he literally was able to flip off Justinian, and what are you going to do about it? You know, type the golden deal. child. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, Justinian couldn't send Belisarius, but that's because he was over in in Italy. Like like you said, he got not, no uh, consequences for any of his actions. Yeah, yeah, it's impressive. So, you know, good job, High King Man. Yeah, the 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 two uh, the two stories about two of his wives again. We don't know about the other ones. Uh, were pretty sad, and that's the only consequences I'd say he had. But yeah other than that yeah he came out pretty well all things considered yeah so do you have any anything else on him hmm no honestly just like one of the it's nice every once in a while to just have one of those uh clear-cut kings who more or less do everything right for some reason and it's not like the founder. It's not like a Clovis or an Alaric or a Geyseric. It's after Clovis. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's also nice, too. You don't have the um, uh, Catherine the Great syndrome. Yeah, exactly. Where you're just like, yep, you know, one ruler does great. Their son is completely inept. Now, this person from day one just saw the winds, how they were blowing, and uh, proceeded to uh, fly a kite. <laughs> Yep. That is three high kings in a row. We were on a dry spell for quite a long time before this. Well, there's a reason why uh, a lot of this is, you know, shaped and gone into modern France today is because mm -hmm. they're successful. If exactly. they were lousy, then they would have, if they were lousy, then they would have just been taken over by like Rome, Rome. Visigoths, if they were oh better. yeah Visigoths, definitely well if um, yeah if if Uric lived on and never gave it to alaric there's probably going to be a fair number of high kings queens etc oh yeah definitely and then uh like i said what we're gonna do is we're aiming for the year 600 is the is when uh late antiquity closes and we will put all of the hands of the king against each other along with all the high monarchs against each other and we will see who forms our kingdom the battle royale exactly that's a podcast already though okay so it is everyone's can't, quest can't, <laughs> can't snatch that one up no it's uh it's the arena quest from oblivion mm, yeah to be who will be the champion of europe good people of the imperial city yeah yeah i love i love oblivion uh it is a fantastic Alrighty, well 
that brings us to the end of Theodor... Te not Theodor... That brings us to the end of Theodor Burt. Let us know what you thought of him. Do you agree with us on him? Uh, are you more pessimistic like Scott? Or are you more optimistic about him like me? Or are you something completely different? You can catch us on Messenger on Facebook and Instagram at Quest for Power. Or you can email us at questforpowerpod at gmail.com. If you would like more Quest for Power in your life, we have bonus content for you at Patreon. Uh, in fact, the, we just talked about Elder Scrolls uh, and especially Oblivion, which game the, I would argue is the game that had the best guilds. We are kind of creating our own little guild called the Lore Masters Guild. And our goal is to basically do the lore of Europe. So that's essentially what we're doing anyway when we are trying to document all the kings and queens. Uh, this way... I could try and document the kings and queens that got two sentences written to their name, but they were pretty good sentences. Like, um, the bishop had to convince him that he couldn't marry his aunt or something like stepmother. That's what it was. The bishop had to convince this one king over in England to not marry his stepmother. So you gotta, you gotta go through people like that. Yeah. There's an entire genre of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's all we have for this week. Next week, we're going to review his son, uh, Teoda Had. And with that, the king is dead. Long live the king. Long live the king.